Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Clio Talk, filmed in front of a live studio audience. My name is Matt. I'm RC, and that that was way too fucking energetic. <laughs> yeah, because we're gonna do the live studio audience bit because oh. we have one person in the room from sunny about. Palmdale, California. Spin wheel. that wheel, <sighs> Fortune. Ooh, and I'm not sure. This is any, really stupid. I'm not sure any of our listener base actually like watched Wheel of Fortune because we have access to demographics and. I mean, I guess they had grandparents. We're hitting it hard in the 92 to 150 range. Yeah, we, we are. Yeah. But um, I saw that room temperature super electric bullshit on Twitter, and you were talking to me about that, and yes. I have no idea. Could you please just fill me in on what's going on with that? Uh, well, I mean, I don't know what it is either because I'm not a scientist, right? And that's my that's my prefacing. I just see what people tweet about, but it's, yeah, it's in theory a room temperature semiconductor, superconductor rather, uh, which means... If it works in like 10 to 15 years, good things. Magnets that don't need helium, like MRIs don't need uh, helium to cool them. They don't need a non-renewable resource. You know, better magnets for like maglev trains. Uh, resistanceless electricity transfer, i.e. like your power lines. They currently lose, uh, you know, energy due to resistance over distance. That doesn't exist anymore, in theory, if it works. And your quote. electronics... 100% efficient, so well, batteries are more efficient for your laptop or your phone. To quote insane clown posse, fucking magnets, how do they work? I do and I don't, don't want to talk to a scientist because they're always lying. Yeah. I, I am not, uh, what is it, Gigolo? Jug- juggalo. Juggalo? Juggalo. I, um, unfortunately. I have only listened to that song because it also fi- uh, features them talking about one of them getting their cell phone eaten by a, a, like a pelican. Christian, there's another outlet over there. Yeah. Yeah. Christian, pl- plug your phone in while we're recording our podcast. Yeah, come on, man. Anyways, <laughs> we have audience participation. <laughs> who, who didn't actually want to be on the episode, but wanted to be in the yeah, room. Yeah, he just wants to sit and, like, listen. And we told him, you know, we do record this. You can listen to it at any point. He's like, nah. Being yeah. there's half the battle. <sighs> anyway, uh... Oh, uh, I thought you were going to do your thing. I, I'm going to do my thing. I was listening to a podcast today, and I heard an ad for watermelons. Well, what? Like, not a company, not a product, just an ad. You should eat more watermelon. That was it. That was the whole oh. ad. Oh, I have a story. I'm stealing this from a friend. <laughs> okay. So, I have a friend whose entire job is just kind of a gopher for, like, marketing and communications for a mid-sized insurance company yes and around christmas time last year he was assigned a job where they wanted to give a bunch of presents to a bunch of clients and it had different tiers based off of like if you were like a high level executive at that place then like the mid-tier people and then the general gift just give to like the entire office yeah and the uh, ceo of this company was like, I want to give the executives of the accounts that we have who buy insurance from us these bespoke Japanese melons. Okay. Yes. Like the cube ones? The, 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 not the cube ones. Some other, like, more obscure Japanese melon. I have to say, when I think of Japan, I don't think of melons. That's not I, the first thing. Uh, I don't either. And... um 
literally I got updates from my friend constantly of like, hey, there's no one who imports these melons. Hey, I think I might have to get an FDA food importer license to import <laughs> these melons. Hey, I am using Google Translate to talk to this guy on Facebook about these melons. All in the pursuit of vanity. All in the pursuit of vanity because the CEO is just like, I want those melons. I heard about them from a Facebook ad and I must have them for my clients. So <laughs> these specific melons. And, and I remember specifically at the time he was just like, I can't believe I got a master's degree just to spend time <laughs> trying to get these melons. Really makes you feel like you're getting your money's worth, huh? <laughs> yeah. God, God. Uh, if that isn't like the banality of modern life where you spend your entire <laughs> life getting a degree, spending thousands of dollars only for you to be in charge of melon imports and exports <laughs> that, that was for a large was, insurance company. That was one of, I don't want to, I don't want to rat him out because if I say this other part in actual full detail, you can easily figure out what company he works for. But his social security number is three, one, two, four, five, eight, three, two, Oh, yes. Uh, but he also, after the melon incident, entire job was traveling for like a couple months was traveling to different conferences with a, uh, world's largest item. And his only job was making sure that world's largest item got to the conferences. That, that was his only job. The world's like, like it, 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 it was like, I'm going to use something else. Like the world's largest bird feeder. Uh, he was, his entire job was transported, like figuring out, like watching the world's largest bird feeder <laughs> at these conferences. He wasn't actually like talking to people. He was just, his only job was making sure that the world's largest bird feeder got to places. I just think of that tweet where it's the guy and like the, uh, like, mascot costume being like how the fuck am i an essential employee <laughs> yeah and and i remember him telling me about transporting the world's largest bird feeder around he's just like yeah no it is a uh five figure transport i'm like wait wait wait, wait 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 you mean to tell me that your company pays basically your salary every single time they want to move this and you've been moving it to different conferences multiple times throughout the past like few months he's like yes that large item is worth more than you yeah the, the large item and its transport to different conferences is worth more than what if we there's pay a you. car crash they're getting the birdcage out first <laughs> yeah you can die in the flames you're not worth as much uh but uh, talking about uh, flames and not being worth anything, uh, if you listen to our previous episode about the Yellow Corporation, uh, Yellow Corp is bankrupt. The it's from the episode Judgment Day. It is from the episode Judgment Day. Like um, uh, Yellow Corp uh, is ceasing operations and filing for bankruptcy. This is from the AP. Uh, this is a uh, one of the largest uh, LTL transport agencies in the country and is based in the Kansas City area. Yes. And they are... Uh, completely bankrupt and people are out of jobs which if you remember from last time we were talking about how they just were not paying for like health insurance or stuff they just were like no nah, we're not going to pay that and all that makes a lot more sense now where they are completely bankrupt yeah it's almost and, like it was a really bad sign and now thirty thousand people are out of jobs thirty thousand union guys are out of jobs and uh i was in an this is going to sound really weird i was in an instagram reels hole the other day when this news first came out you were in the poll in the reels hole oh okay like like i I was deep in instagram reels uh and not tiktok not youtube shorts instagram reels and i got to the point to where i got to uh people posting about yellow corp 
yellow corp. and it was like all the comments on these like yellow corp instagram reels were about like yeah this is what happens when you unionize and it's like no this is what happens when you run a company when you're 1.5 billion dollars in debt even after getting a 700 million dollars free loan from the government that gets written off yeah like i do how do you fuck up that bad you give me 700 dollars You'll never see me again. I'm going to Mexico. <laughs> I, I will just get murdered by the cartels. I do not care. It's not even enough money. Yeah. I don't think you get a plane ticket. For $700 million? Oh, $700 million? What did I say? Did you, I say $700? Yeah, you said $700. Yeah, say, <laughs> you will see me homeless. <laughs> yeah. I will quit my job if I get $700 tomorrow. <laughs> uh. Yeah, so uh, Yellow Corp is uh, out of business, and yeah, th- this is bad. If if you run a business that gives you seven hundred million dollars, and you somehow fuck that up, honestly, I hope the people who are like in charge of business planning for Yellow never see jobs again, because oh, you, I wouldn't. You know, they already have jobs, right? Like yeah. they're a hundred percent already employed somewhere else. Yeah, but uh, who's just like Yo, director of finance for uh, Yellow Trucking? Can you please come and do our finances, even though you did this? Now, I do see a in this AP article a thing where it's talking about they got the loan on national security grounds. It's a trucking like, company. If they're a national security risk, maybe we could nationalize Yellow and then have our own computing trucking corporation <laughs> it, 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 on grounds of national security, apparently. Hmm. 49,000 shipments per day. Did do the podcasts that got PPB loans uh, also get them on national security grounds, as we know that our yes. nation's defense is based solely off of disinformation from podcasts? Yes. Joe Rogan is a vital national effort, asset, asset. Jesus Christ. But when are we nationalizing the Joe Rogan experience? <laughs> <laughs> Not soon enough. Not soon enough. We're going to have state-mandated podcasters. Man. Anyway, that... The, yeah, that, that was pretty much the whole segment. Yeah, that, that was the entire segment. We're going to, uh, we, we listened and uh, found stuff that worked that people like. So now we're going to do it more. And we have more Casey mob stories. Yeah, they're fun. There's a lot of them. There are. A Christian live studio audience member who I'm doxing. Did you know that Kansas City used to be one of the largest uh, like mafia-esque crime hotspots in America? Yes. Place yourself in the spot of Christian right now, audience. Yes, you are a listener. Just imagine yourself in our room. There's mold. There's fire. It smells weird. It smells weird. There's two guys that plug their microphones into a laptop. We're sitting on the floor right now. You guys really are just two white guys in a room. Huh? Yeah, what the fuck's yeah. wrong with that? <laughs> we, we, had to, we had to put away the pretzels because we were eating. I'm wearing the quirked up white boy shirt. Yeah. Christian, who refuses to have a mic despite actually being a guest right now, <laughs> even though he doesn't know it. <laughs> All right. Anyways. We have an yeah. article from uh, FBI.gov. Yeah, that's right. They do articles, but they, you didn't know that. They do articles. Wait, real quick. I wonder what the front page of the FBI website looks like. Okay, it's boring. Never mind. <laughs> that was a good tangent. That was a useful use of our time. <laughs> All right, uh, this is the Kansas City Massacre and Pretty Boy Floyd. I want you to skip this bit because that spoils it. All right. I want you to just start here. This starts out as the criminal motive. 
The Kansas City Massacre involved the attempt by Charles Arthur Pretty Boy Floyd. Which, reading into this, every single one of these goddamn guys has a nickname. It's like you have to have a nickname. I don't get it. And then the next two don't have nicknames. <laughs> Vernon Miller and Adam Roschetti to free their th- friend Frank Nash, a federal prisoner at the time. Nash was in custody was in the custody of several law enforcement officers who were returning him to the U.S. penitentiary at Leavenworth, Kansas, from which he had escaped on October 19, 1930. Nash's criminal record reached back to 1913 when he was sentenced to life at the state penitentiary McAllister, Oklahoma, for murder. He was later pardoned. That's weird. Is this when a time where you could like still write letters to like Warren G. Harding and be like, hey, pardoned me? Yeah. You just get a couple of the lads to show up to the White House and be like, yo, Mr. President, this guy who... He's my bro. Can you please... His nickname's Pretty Boy. Do you think he could murder him? No, anyone? his name's Frank. Oh. Frank Nash. Damn, this is confusing. Yeah. I've, there, already, I've already lost track of the story. One, two, and we're not three, even... Like... There's four names currently in play. <laughs> yeah, and I've you already lost... confused two of them. <laughs> well, this is not uh, voting well. In 1920, he was given a 25-year sentence at the same penitentiary for burglary and explosives and was later pardoned again. Do you think this guy might have a, you know, maybe maybe we should stop pardoning him? <laughs> I think there's something going on here. On March 3rd, 1924, Nash began a 25-year sentence at the U.S. penitentiary at Leavenworth for assaulting a male custodian. He escaped on October 19th. Didn't get pardoned for that. He didn't get pardoned, apparently. You can murder someone and get pardoned, but male custodians, that's where we draw the Uh, line. Punching the mailman will get you 25 years in jail without pardon. He escaped on October 19th, 1930. The FBI launched an... Intensive search for Nash, which extended over the entire U.S. and parts of Canada. But why was the FBI in Canada? I mean, it's, I don't know. Canada is a fake country. That's why. There's like 10 people that lived there at the time, right? Yeah. Evidence, Half of them spoke French. Evidence gather, gathered by the FBI indicated that Nash had assisted in the escape of seven prisoners from the U.S. penitentiary at Leavenworth on December 11th, 1931. The investigation also disclosed Nash's close association with Francis L. Keating, Thomas Holden, and several other well-known gunmen who had participated in the murder of, in a mur- number of bank robberies throughout the Midwest. Keating and Holden were apprehended by FBI agents on July 7, 1932, in Kansas City, Missouri. They're that era's chiefsaholic. Yes. Just robbing banks across the Midwest. Information gained by the FBI... As a result of the apprehension of the two indicated that Nash was receiving protection from the underworld contacts in Hot Springs, Arkansas. There were underworld contacts in Hot Springs? Yes. It's it's a it's the hotbed. It's the hotbed. Hot yeah, they call it the Italy of America, Hot Springs, Arkansas. Based on such information, two FBI agents, Frank Smith and F. Joseph Lackey, and McAllister, Oklahoma Police Chief Otto Reed located and apprehended Nash on June 16, 1933, in a store in Hot Springs, Arkansas. The law officers drove Nash to Fort Smith, Arkansas, where at 8.30 at night they boarded a Missouri Pacific train bound to Kansas City, Missouri. It was due to arrive at 7.15 a.m. on June 17th. Before leaving, the lawmen made arrangements for Reed 
E. Vitterlari, a special agent in charge of the FBI's Kansas City office, to meet them at the train station. The plan is set in motion. <clears throat> Meanwhile, a number of outlaw fiends, friends, I misread that. I was about to say, actually, my comment was going to be, nobody uses the word fiends anymore. And this article also does not use the word fiends. Of Nash had heard this caption, Hot Springs. They learned the time of the scheduled arrival of Nash and his captors in Kansas City and made plans to free him. The scheme was conceived and engineered by Richard Tallman Galatis, Herbert Farmer, Doc Lewis Stachy and Frank B. Malloy. Vernon Miller was designated to free Nash, and while at Malloy's tavern in Kansas City, he made a number of phone calls for assistance in the scheme. At this time, two gunmen, Pretty Boy Floyd and Adam Ricchetti, arrived in Kansas City, and they agreed to aid in the mission. On their way to Kansas City, Floyd and Ricchetti had been detained at Boulevard, Missouri, early in the morning of the 16th, when the car in which they were riding became disabled. While the two of them were waiting in a local garage for the necessary repairs of the car, Sheriff Jack Killingsworth, <laughs> what an incredible name, <laughs> hello, I'm Officer Killingsworth, <laughs> entered the building. Uh, Ricchetti, who immediately recognized the sheriff, seized a machine gun and held the sheriff and the garage attendants against the wall. Okay. Uh, Floyd drew two forty-five caliber automatic pistols and ordered all parties to remain motionless. Floyd and Ricchetti then transferred their arsenal into another automobile and ordered the sheriff to enter that vehicle. The two, along with their prisoner, drove to Deepwater, Missouri, abandoned that automobile, and commandeered another. After releasing the sheriff, they arrived in Kansas City about 10 p.m. on June 16th. At least they let the guy go. I mean, Jesus, they, they capture him at machine gun point, <laughs> drive him halfway across the state, and it's like, no, you're good to go. It's fine. Bye. Uh, there, Floyd and Ricchetti abandoned their automobile and stolen another car to which they transferred their baggage and firearms. Finally, that same night, they met Miller and with, went with him to his home. There, Miller told them of this plan to free Frank Nash. So June 17th, 1933, early... Stop. Yes. Instead of June 17th, 1933, at this point, we are going to uh, do 2023, in which Mayor Quentin Lucas has announced that he's having a special birthday sandwich from Q39 for his birthday. Oh, wow, yeah. Do you know about Have you seen this? I think I saw it, yeah. Yeah. Mayor Q. The, uh, Mayor Q from the Q39 for his 39th birthday. He just birthday. won re-election and always got a special birthday sandwich. There, the, the barbecue restaurant Q39 is making him a birthday sandwich. Is it is it weird for a politician to partner with... Like a, a restaurant, a for restaurant, like Tell right it. after winning re-election, and is that weird? For like a it seems sandwich? weird, right? Yeah, it, and also like putting the announcement on your official Kansas City Twitter account. <laughs> I'm imagining the Joe Biden meal at McDonald's now. <laughs> <laughs> just like... <laughs> it's just an ice cream cone. Politicians just start like. Yeah, come get the AOC meal at Wendy's. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, God. Why does he have a sandwich? I need to try it, though. Yeah? Yeah. He gets any good? I don't know. We're, we're, yeah, Is it just like a generic? It's got to be just like a generic barbecue sandwich, it, right? Like, it is a... It's got uh, grilled pimento cheese brisket on toasted sourdough. Do you think that he picked that out, or do you think they just emailed him and is like, "Hey, you wanna you wanna put your name on this?" I I think this might have been a PR thing, and the restaurant was kind of really? just. You think it's a PR thing? Yeah, I mean, he probably reached out to Q thirty nine for like his thirty ninth birthday since he's Mayor Q and is turning thirty nine years old. Yeah, Quinn thirty nine. Yeah, yeah, and he was just uh, 
and Q39, the barbecue restaurant, is just kind of like, we'll make like a super easy sandwich. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very mediocre sounding sandwich. It does it's sound it's very it's plain. Does, does what, barbecue, pulled pork barbecue remind Yeah. What was it? It, 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 it brisket, yeah, yeah. brisket and pimento cheese brisket. on sourdough. Pimento cheese over some it, cheese that no one I, I think it's very basic and bland, and the same could be said for the mayor. Hey, we we kind of like Mayor it's, Q. It's unexciting. He's like just a politician, you know. He's yeah. just a politician. He's got the politician veneer. Like like yeah, back to the Kansas City massacre. <laughs> uh, yeah. So on June seventeenth of nineteen thirty-three, traveling back in time almost a hundred and ten years, uh, early the next morning, Miller, Floyd, and Ricchetti drove to the Union Railway Station in a Chevrolet sedan. There, they took up their positions to await the arrival of Nash and his captors. Upon the arrival of the train in Kansas City, Agent Lackey went to the loading platform, leaving Smith, Reed, and Nash in the stateroom of the train. On the platform, he was met by Special Agent Charge Verletti, who was accompanied by... In Charge. Oh, I thought his first name was just Charge. No, In Charge. (laughs) I was going to comment on that, like, damn. Uh, Charge Verletti. Yeah. Uh, Who was accompanied by FBI Agent R.J. Caffrey. Yeah, let Joe out. Joe wants out of the room. Let that cat out. Hey, you, you tell him, Joe. You tell him you want out. There you go. Uh, R.J. Caffrey and officers W.J. Grooms and Frank Hermanson of the Kansas City Police Department. These men surveyed the area surrounding the platform and saw nothing that aroused their suspicion. Special agent in charge, Verletti, advised Agent Lackey that he and Caffrey had brought two cars to the Union Station and the cars were parked immediately outside. Agent Lackey then returned to the train and, accompanied by Chief Reed, Special Agent in Charge Verletti, Agents Caffrey and Smith, and Officers Hermanson and Grooms, proceeded from the train through the lobby of Union Station. At the time, both Agent Lackey and Chief Reed were armed with shotguns. Other officers carried pistols. Frank and Nash walked through Union Station with the above-mentioned seven officers. Upon leaving Union Station, the lawmen with their captive paused briefly, again seeing nothing that aroused their suspicion. They proceeded to Caffrey's Chevrolet. Frank Nash was handcuffed throughout the trip and from the train to the Chevrolet, which was parked directly in front of the east entrance of Union Station. Agent Caffrey unlocked the right door of the Chevrolet. When the door was open, Nash started to get in the back seat. However, Agent Lackey told Nash to get into the front of the car. Lackey then climbed into the back of the car directly behind the driver's seat. Agent Smith sat beside him in the center of the back, and Chief Reed sat beside Smith in the right rear seat. Agent Caffrey walked around the car to get into the driver's seat through the left door. Special Agent in charge Verletti stood with Officers Hermanson and Grooms at the right side near the front of the car. A green Plymouth was parked about six feet away on the right side of Agent Caffrey's car. Looking in the direction of his Plymouth, Agent Lackey saw two men run from behind a car. He noticed that both the men were armed, and at least one had a machine gun. Before Agent Lackey had a chance to warn his fellow officers, one of the gunmen shouted, Up, up! At this instant, Agent Smith, who was in the middle of the back seat, also saw a man with a machine gun to the right of the Plymouth. Special Agent in charge of Verletti, who was standing at the right of the front of the Chevrolet, turned just in time to hear a voice command, Hey, let him have it! I'm imagining like a you know stereotypical mobster. Hey, boss, let him have it! That's a terrible mobster accent. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, at this point, from a distance approximately 15 feet diagonally to the right of Agent Caffrey's Chevrolet, an agent individual crouched behind the radio of another car opened fire. Officer Grooms and Hermanson immediately fell to the ground dead. 
Special agent in charge, Verletti, who was standing beside Officer Grimms and Hermanson, was shot in the left arm and dropped to the ground. As he attempted to scramble to the left side of the car to join Agent Caffrey, who had not yet entered the driver's seat of the Chevrolet, special agent in charge, Verletti, saw Caffrey fall to the ground. He'd been fatally wounded in the head. Inside the car, Frank Nash and Chief Reed were killed by bullets from the hoodlums' guns. Hoodlums, it's like you can call them like mafiosos or something. Agents Lackey and Smith were able to survive the massacre by failing, falling forward in the backseat of the Chevrolet. Lackey was struck and seriously wounded by three bullets. Smith was unscathed. The three gunmen rushed to the lawman's car and looked inside. One of them was heard to shout, They're all dead, let's get out of here. And with that, they raced towards a dark-colored Chevrolet. Just then, a Kansas City policeman emerged from Union Station and began firing in the direction of one of the killers, later identified as Floyd, who slumped briefly but continued to run. The killers entered the car, which sped westward out of the parking area and disappeared. The three survivors, Agent Smith and Lackey and Special Agent in Charge Verletti, reported that the assault lasted possibly 30 seconds. They were uncertain if three or four gunmen staged the assault, and from their account it is apparent that the two Kansas City police officers were killed immediately, followed seconds later by Frank Nash, Chief Reed, and then by Agent Caffrey, who was taken to the hospital and pronounced dead on arrival. Well, see, now you're just undermining the whole thing. I don't know what to believe. But uh, now, so you plan this thing for days. It's your boss guy. He's been in and out of jail three times. He's been pardoned before when he's already gone to jail. You show up to rescue him, and then you spray the car he's in down with bullets and kill him. (laughs) Everybody in the car, like, I don't know what they were planning. I I don't know how they thought this would go, but it's just like, yeah, let's just kill everybody. It's, it's, that's why I I just love the story because it's just so incredibly incompetent. And honestly, he probably would have gotten pardoned if he had gotten to the penitentiary. Yeah. And uh, my favorite part about this is I've never actually really like looked into the story before. But as a Kansas City, like growing up in Kansas City, you would do your field trip to Union Station post restoration in 2004. And they talk about the bullet holes or whatever, and they point like one or two out to you, and it's just like you thought it was some like cool, really like dramatic scene, but it was just two idiots trying to save their friend and killing him and an FBI agent, and then just running. Yeah, which yeah, if you do go to Union Station today, it is the exact same building as it was a hundred years ago, and you can see the bullet holes. Well, it's so. not the exact same. It's, it's been restored. It's the same building. I mean, it's it, like the ship of Theseus. You yeah. know? It's still the same building, even though it's been fixed, mm-hmm. right? Like when you change a light fixture, it's still the same building. No, it's not. It's not a different building. No, it, no it's the same ship. It's the same ship. No, because it's titled the ship of Theseus, so no matter what modifications you make... Yeah, no, but well, it's the same well, ship. The title is what audience. makes the ship. Don't argue I'm, with the audience. I'm allowed to argue with the audience <laughs> if they're wrong. <laughs> Anyways, so then the investigation begins, and the FBI, because this is an article from their website, you know, that half of this thing was just about how good they did of a job of finding these it, guys. It, it, is FBI.gov like a... Is this a primary source or a secondary source? Because uh, like this is like from there... They were involved in this. Well, this is a secondary source because the FBI is not like, I, I mean, it's individuals. Not, the person who wrote this like article what wasn't involved, wasn't yeah. alive. Yeah, so I it mean. is a secondary source, but it's coming from the FBI. <laughs> the FBI isn't like a person, you know. It's, Maybe it's they have like, like Jag or Hoover in like a pool floating in like solvent or he's whatever. It's like one of those Futurama heads. Yeah. yeah. 
He's still in charge after all these years. Um, yeah, so they uh, they begin a search and try to find the guys. They they start to figure out the guys. Uh, they figured I was carried out by Vernon C. Miller, Adam C. Ricchetti, Charles Arthur, Pretty Boy Floyd. Uh, they developed evidence towards this fact, including latent fingerprint impressions located by FBI agents on beer bottles in Miller's Kansas City home. Um, and they identified those of Adam Ricchetti, thus helping link the latter to the crime. Uh, okay, so this is kind of like background. I don't know how much how much background do we want to do on the individual killers, because... It's kind of like a manhunt thing. We, let's skip to the manhunt. Yes. So their manhunt for Pretty Boy Floyd and Adam Ricchetti intensified. Uh, Charles Arthur Pretty Boy Floyd was about 29 years old at the time of the Kansas City Massacre. He had been arrested on numerous occasions, the first by the St. Louis Police, Missouri. Uh, I, how did I swap those? On September 16, 1925, for highway robbery. He pleaded guilty to that charge on December 8, 1925, and was sentenced to the state penitentiary of Jefferson City, Missouri, and released on March 7, 1929. Two days later, March 9, 1929, he was arrested by the Kansas City Police Department for investigation, and on May 6, 1929, for vagrancy and suspicion of highway robbery. In both instances, he was released. On May 20th, 1930, Floyd was arrested by the Toledo, Ohio Police Department on a bank robbery charge. And on November 24th, 1930, he was sentenced to 12 to 15 years in the Ohio State Penitentiary. Floyd escaped en route to the penitentiary as a fugitive when he became involved in the Kansas City Massacre. Adam C. Ricchetti, about 23 years old at the time of the Kansas City Massacre, began his criminal career with an arrest in Hammond, Indiana on August 7th, 1928 for a holdup. Ricchetti was sentenced from 1 to 10 years in the state reformatory, Pendleton, Indiana, for that crime. He was paroled on October 2, 1930, and discharged from the parole on September 23, 1931. His next arrest occurred on March 9, 1932, at Sulphur, Oklahoma, for bank robbery. These guys really get around. Yeah. Like they're, they're, they're just, like, popping all over the place. Riding those trains. Yeah. He used to be able to get anywhere on the rails. He subsequently served a sentence at the state penitentiary, McAllister, Oklahoma, from August, April 5th, 1932 to August 25th, 1932, when he was released and placed on bond, which he forfeited. Ricchetti subsequently was sought for jumping the $15,000 bond and was wanted at Tishomingo, Oklahoma, for robbery. After fleeing from the Kansas City Massacre, Floyd and Ricchetti made their way to Toledo, Ohio, where they met Balua, known as Juanita, and Rose Baird, in early September 1933. From there, the four traveled to Buffalo, New York. On September 21st, 1933, Floyd and Balua Baird, using the names of Mr. and Mrs. George Sanders, and Ricchetti and Rose Baird, using the names Mr. and Mrs. Ed Brennan, rented an apartment in that city. The other occupants of the apartment building considered the two couples very mysterious in as much as the seldom of their apartment, and usually for brief visits to the uh, grocery store. During their occupancy, Floyd reportedly walked from the front to the rear of the apartment almost constantly, an activity that caused much curiosity on the part of the other building occupants. The two couples never visited with any of their neighbors, though they were friendly towards the neighborhood children who were sometimes permitted to enter the apartment. The women occasionally threw money from the windows of the apartment to the children playing in the street or offered them candy. So that's the one thing I've always like, I'm screwed if there's ever like an investigation. Because right there, it's just like they didn't talk to their neighbors, so they were suspicious. And it's like, 
I, I don't talk to my neighbors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Am I immediately and, suspicious? W- weird that like that expectation because like living in like apartments, like I have never like once had a friendly conversation with a neighbor. It was like even if they were there, it was just kind of like like a nod, the mm-hmm. nod. Yeah, you never like go over to their house for drinks or whatever. It's and like I also that... would never let their kids into my apartment. Yeah, that's kind of creepy now. I, I mean, it's just like a complete cultural divide between then and now, you know. Because nowadays, if that happens, it's like you're a serial killer or whatever. Granted, these guys were serial killers yeah. that we're talking about. I mean, I guess that's. They had like pieces. They're like Yeah, they were like they were like uh, you know stand up stand up guys. That's Aside from the murders, they, you know standards. Yeah. I do not know if the audience is going to be able to hear you. Yeah, <laughs> the, 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 we offered a microphone. Yeah, no. he said no. Okay. I'm done for. In October 1934, the couples agreed to return to Oklahoma. Rose Byer was given money to purchase a car. She bought a Ford sedan, which was to carry them west. The four began the trip on October 20th with Floyd driving. A few hours later, in Wellsville, Ohio, he skidded the automobile into a telephone pole. (laughs) (laughs) What the hell? You make it like four hours and you run into a freaking telephone pole? <laughs> Driving was new to them. Oh, my God. Floyd and Rochetti removed their firearms from the vehicle and then remained on the outskirts of the town, while Rose and Byla Bard took the damaged car to a Wellsville garage for repairs. I like how you probably pronounced her name earlier, and I wasn't paying attention. Yeah, uh, okay. The Wellsville, Ohio police chief, J.H. Fultz, Following up on the reports of two suspicious-looking men were seen on the outskirts of town where found the two resting in the wood track of the land nearby. A gun battle ensued. Chief Fultz apprehended Rochetti after Rochetti had emptied his gun at the officer. Floyd escaped, but the police chief thought Floyd might have been wounded. I do like how you find a couple of suspicious-looking guys in the forest in the immediate thing is let's just start a gunfight with them yeah. i'm assuming the mobster shot first but it, it just is funny it's like hey those guys are sleeping well, in the woods considering the let's image them, is uh of uh on the side is of pretty boy floyd's death mask uh but you don't think he he could still be around he could maybe still he be faked around his death maybe he did fake his death <laughs> maybe he's still around today the FBI and local authorities conducted an intensive search for Floyd in eastern Ohio following the above incident. This incident is this included interviews with numerous persons and uh, the primarily rural countryside, including doctors and hospital personnel whom Floyd might approach if, in fact, he was wounded. A, the participants in the surge, a squad of four FBI agents led by Melvin Purvis, along with a squad of four East Liverpool, Ohio police officers, headed by police chief Hugh McDermott, were jointly patrolling a group of the roads south of Clarkston, Ohio, in two cars on October 22nd, when they noticed an automobile move from behind a corn crib on a farm. Officers began questioning all the persons whom they saw. In an effort to question the occupants of this automobile, they stopped their cars. At this point, the vehicle that had attracted their attention, drove back to its original position behind the corn crib. And a man, whom the officers immediately recognized as Floyd, jumped from the car with a forty-five caliber automatic pistol in his right hand. As the officers reached Floyd, he said, I'm done for. You've hit me twice. They took the pistol from his hand and uh, seized a second gun that he carried on his belt. When two FBI agents left to summon an ambulance to take Floyd to a hospital, they were accompanied by a local citizen who had witnessed the encounter. 
two other local citizens, including the owner of the farm where the shooting took place, were also witnesses to the action that occurred. Floyd died a, about 15 minutes after he was shot. So they, so, so he didn't go to a hospital? No, I, I don't think the ambulance actually made it out. Okay. At the time Floyd was killed, a, a watch and fob consisting of a lucky piece were found on his person. Groups of 10 notches were found on each of these items, reportedly carved by Floyd as an indication of people he had killed. Rose and Bulela Bailard were <laughs> barred, who were in the Wellsville garage attending to the repair of the wrecked automobile when they overheard the discussion of Rochetti being taken into custody, had left immediately for Kansas City, Missouri. Later, they had traveled to the home of Floyd's family in... Sila, Oklahoma, where they attended the funeral of Charles Pretty Boy Floyd. Wrapping up the case, Adam Rochetti, following his apprehension, was returned to Kansas City, Missouri, uh, and on the 1st of March, 1935, was indicted by the Jackson County Grand Jury on four counts of murder in the first degree. His trial, predicated on the indictment, Indictment charge. Indictment. Indictment. I had it first, right the first time. Jesus no, Christ. How, how do you, with the news right now, how do you not know how to say that? Indictment, yeah. yeah. It's all right. Charging him with the murder of Frank E. Hermiston. One of the police officers killed in the Kansas City massacre begun on June 10th, 1935. On June 17th, the jury returned a verdict of guilty with the recommendation that Roche be given the death penalty. He was sentenced to be hanged. Reading is hard sometimes, especially when you've had a beer. That's fair. That is very fair. What and, are you drinking and, right now? And that there's also people who are going to listen to this. Yeah, what are you drinking right now? Uh, it is a Montucky cold snack. Would you recommend it? It was all right. Um, it was we, all right? Yeah, it, it, it's also a tall boy. Number one to ten. Yeah, that's fair. One to ten. Which well, one to ten is going to be, I'd give it like a, like a five, six. Five, five, five being a Five is a Budweiser. Five is a Budweiser. I'd say six. I'm not really a big fan of Budweiser. I come from a Miller family myself. Okay. Uh, Miller beer. Seven being Miller. Seven, Seven being Miller. Miller. I, I'm still sticking with six. Six? Just a hard six? Yeah, hard six. Uh, and the only reason that I am drinking this is because I realized I was out of my Line and Kugel summer shanties. Uh, we have Michelob Ultras in there. Oh, yeah. yeah they're, they're shoved under by the pickles down, down under. Oh. Yeah. Sick. Yeah. Anyway. It was back to the guy being uh, executed. Rochetti appealed his conviction, and it was affirmed by the state of Missouri Supreme Court on May 3rd, 1938. Subsequently, Rochetti's lawyers alleged Rochetti to be insane, and a hearing was held at which his time, his sanity was clearly established. On August 31st, 1938, Rochetti was again sentenced to death, uh, this is time in a gas chamber of the Missouri State Penitentiary of Jefferson City, Missouri. He was executed on October seventh, nineteen thirty-eight. Yeah, those those used to be a lot more common. They, they uh, yeah. I wonder if they still have it because you can't go on tours of the penitentiary in Jefferson City. Is it the original penitentiary? I, I think it is the original penitentiary. And they probably do. It's probably like a solitary confinement or something. Yeah, now. let's lock you in the old execution room. The four individuals, Richard Egalitas, Rupert Farmer, Doc Louis Satai, and uh, Frank Malloy, who investigation disclosed had engineered the conspiracy to free Nash, were indicted by the federal grand jury in Kansas City, Missouri on October 21st, 
1934. On January 4th, 1935, the four were found guilty of conspiracy to cause the escape of a federal prisoner from the custody of the United States. The following day, each was sentenced to serve two years in a federal penitentiary and paid a fine of $10,000, maximum penalty allowed by law. I wonder how much $10,000 is in 1934. That sounds painful. Uh, well, are we ever going to figure it out? I'll figure it out. Okay. We you, are looking up fill the, dead space, the inflation right? calculator. Uh, I'm curious on how much $10,000 is in 1934. Um, Bureau of Labor Statistics. Yep. So it is $10,000. We're typing into the calculator right now uh, in 1934. 1934. It is $231,000, $143,000.18. Ah. Yes, I messed that up completely. It's okay. Yeah. You get the gist. $231,000. Spin that wheel. Yeah, because, yeah, that's right. The callback to a bit from 40 minutes earlier. The upshot. The Kansas City Massacre was a dark chapter for law enforcement and for the FBI in particular. At the time, it was one of the deadliest attacks on law in the nation ever seen. Within a year of the tragedy, Congress responded by giving us new tools to fight crime including statutory authority to carry guns and make arrests. Both us of, being the FBI. Us I'm being assuming. the FBI. Not us. We, we do not have the ability to carry guns or now, make arrests. Clear history is federally obligated to carry guns. Yes. It's actually a crime if we don't. We're like the one town in Georgia where you have to have a gun. Yes. We can also arrest you at any time. Yes. We're going to make a citizen's arrest of Christian after this podcast. Both of which have been pillars in our work to protect the nation ever since. On July 1935, the capstone of its newfound identity and successful fight against gangsters, the organization was renamed to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI. So this created the FBI. Yeah, that's how you get the name. And I I wish that they did that still. Like, all right, guys, this is a good case. We did a job well done. As a little treat, let's rename ourselves. Yeah. I, I I thought where you're going is uh, they should bring back citizen posse's. Oh yeah, well they should do that too. Yeah, I, it, but insane see, citizen posse. See, they got like highway <laughs> robbery. <laughs> that was good. I can't insane believe, citizen. It would be way better if you had a microphone. <laughs> it would have been way better if you had a microphone. See, the highway robbery. You just don't get that anymore. Yeah, like. It's fallen so out now. It's just like a term, you know, like, ah, oh, that's highway robbery. But the kids these days, they don't even know what that means. Should we take your Hyundai Tucson, go park it on 435 and try get, to get yeah, people to pay us money? let's just go rob people. Yeah, I, mean, I, I bet go. the cops won't even know what to do. Yeah. Like, well, you're going to arrest me for highway robbery? Is that even <laughs> a real crime? Anyway, yeah. So that is a, a good Cleo talk. Is it? Is it? What is a good Cleo talk? I don't know. As long as the Cleo talk is posted, at least like kind of on time, I think it's a good Cleo talk. Yes. Anyway, this has been Cleo talk. My name is Matt and I have been RC and you can go ahead and follow us on Twitter at Cleo history. You can email us at clear history podcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a review and a share that really helps with algorithm stuff. Uh, specifically now that, you know, with the way algorithms work, you know, you wanted some engagement. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can DM us, email us, or just leave a bad review. Anyway, uh, that's been it. Bye. Bye.